This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal. My guest today is Michela Giorgelli, who is an assistant professor of economics at the University of California, Los Angeles. Today, we are going to talk about her paper, The Dynamics and Spillovers of Management Interventions, Evidence from the Training Within Industry Program, joined with Nicola Bianchi and forthcoming at the Journal of Political Economy. Michela, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jordi. Thank you very much for the invitation. Michela, there are a lot of papers by now about whether management matters, and the answer is reassuringly yes. There is a subset of questions in this literature examining whether management can be taught. And the answer here, again, reassuringly for those of us who teach management, is yes, management can be taught. Your paper contributes to this second literature, important literature. What are the specific questions that you study here? With this paper, we study the long-term effect of management intervention on firm performance. As you said, there is an increasing number of papers that shows that uh, um, the adoption of good managerial practices improves firm performance. But uh, what uh, is still unknown or there is less evidence about is uh, whether managerial intervention, specifically training of managers, can have long-lasting effect on firm performance. And this is exactly the question that we are uh, addressing in this paper. In this podcast, there was a previous episode in which we talked with David McKenzie, a paper by Iacovone, Maloney, and McKenzie, studying individual and group-based consulting. And the effects there were also pretty long-lasting, although I think that they were not as long-lasting as the 10 years that you have here in your setting. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Uh, so uh, this paper is actually thinking about whether managerial intervention can be scaled up. And this comes from the fact that the pioneer work in the field by Bloom and co-author shows that the um, consulting uh, managerial intervention on medium-sized firms in India had a sizable effect on their performance. But of course, consulting is very expensive. And so what the McKenzie co-author do in this paper is uh, look looking at whether there are ways to scale up managerial programs uh, with less uh, expensive uh, interventions. And they find that uh, even the interventions that are more money-saving can still have pretty large effect on firm performance, even though they look at the time span that is shorter than ours. So your, your paper is actually also really going to be about scaling up because, I mean, it's scaling up to a big chunk of the U.S. economy, at a very low cost. We, we will get into the details of that later. But I wanted to ask you about the word dynamics because dynamics is in the title. And one way to think about what dynamics means is essentially long-term, something that happened later in life. The other way to think about dynamics is like some of type of adjustment to a new steady state and what happens you know, throughout this path of adjustment. The way in which you mean the word dynamics here is really the first one, long-term effects. Yes, it's long-term effect, but it's not just looking at whether managerial intervention can have long-lasting effect on firm performance. It's also a way to empirically test the so-called Toyota Way hypothesis. The Toyota Way hypothesis states that the management intervention can have a cumulative effect on firm performance because once firms start adopting good managerial practices, the cost of adopting other managerial 
practices or improve upon the already adopted managerial practices dropped. Uh, this has been brought forward by uh, Womack et Coulter studying exactly what the Toyota uh, car factory in Japan has made to uh, implement uh, the lean production. However, more recently, uh, Brun and Score has uh, brought up the, the idea that manager is a capital, a capital that is missing, especially in developing countries. And as all capitals, it can be subject to depreciation. So one thing that, uh, that this paper allows us to do is test the Toyota hypothesis. So see whether the uh, implementation and the adoption of new managerial practices as a dropping cost once firms getting better management versus talking about the depreciation of managerial capital that can uh, offset the initial uh, benefits of managerial interventions. I, I was very interested by this uh, word, the Toyota way that I saw in the paper. Let me see where I can rephrase what the Toyota way means and whether you agree with my rephrasing. You say in the paper, a single management intervention can put firms on a virtuous cycle of continuous improvements because there is a multiplier effect of ongoing further improvements. So this is the way that I think about this. You have firms that are pretty bad at several dimensions of management. And then for whatever reason, let's say exogenous, they become better at one of these areas of management. Just one of them. Now, because there is a multiplier effect of ongoing further improvements, they find that they will they are better as a fact that they are managed better, but they will be so much better if now they manage by themselves to improve the other dimension of management in which they are still pretty bad. Hmm? Like the, suddenly the marginal benefit of improving the other areas has increased. And that is what puts these firms in that virtuous cycle of continuous improvement in which the complementarity between practices implies that once that initial spark has taken place, then the other areas keep getting better over time. And that's what creates this dynamic effect that you were referring to. Is this something that I have summarized accurately, in your opinion? Yes, absolutely. But it is not just that. It's that even the single implementation of a managerial practice could have a cumulative effect. For instance, let's think about maintenance of the machinery and registering the causes of breakdown, which is uh, one of the managerial practices that uh, Toyota implemented and is still today in the managerial interventions. So, so on the one hand, if you start to perform regular maintenance of the machines, your performance are getting better because you have less capital breakdowns. But on the one hand, if you systematically record the, the causes of machinery breakdown, if an episode happens again in the future, you know exactly how to fix it. And so the initial change in the way in which capital is maintenance is maintained and uh, these uh, maintenance are recorded allow you to get better in fixing the problem if it happens again in the future. So there is some underlying complementarity in the production function between the practices. And that means that if randomly I become better at one of them, given that complementarity, I will want to figure out by myself how to improve the others. Or the, the, I will improve the others because the marginal benefit of improving them is suddenly higher. Is that? Yes. Is that still? Yes. Okay, great. Excellent. So now 
Let's talk about the specific training program that you study, the training within industry. What does that mean? What happened? And so on. Yes. So the training within the industry program was a management training program sponsored by the U.S. government during World War II, so between 1940 and 1945. Even before the U.S. entered World War II, it was clear that uh, there was an increasing number of orders for war material by uh, the Allies, but also the concrete possibility that the war would have touched the U.S. as well. And so the Defense Department started thinking about how the uh, government could have firm to meet the increased order and to be prepared for war. Among other initiatives, it was brought forward the idea that improving the managerial capabilities of firms was important to uh, win the war. And so in this context, uh, the training within the industry program was implemented. The initial idea was to offer consulting program to all the war contractors, so firms that receive at least one war contract for the US government between 1940 and 1945. But it was soon realized that a program like that would have been too uh, uh, costly on the one end, and on the other end, it could have been lack of uh, instructor and consultant to, to run the program. So it was uh, decided to have uh, implant training for the work contractors, in which instructors previously have uh, followed an instruction course in DC for six weeks, were sent to the plant of the work contractors and taught them how to adopt uh, managerial practices. And the content of this training could be divided into three sets of managerial practices that at the time were called J models. So we have the job instructors that taught firms how to improve firm factory operations. The job methods was about how to manage production, prioritizing order based on the delivery deadline and planning and organize inventory and the job relations that uh, dealt with uh, dealing with workers, assign them to specific tasks and improve the uh, relationship with the workforce. So there are three different types of instructions or interventions or, or training. You have said that this had to be carried out by instructors who were themselves taught by the headquarters of the TWI, okay, the, the department that was running this. And then they went to the companies and then they taught uh, the workers in there, the workers that the firm had on, on these three different types of uh, training or, or systems. Can you describe how was the allocation of these instructors to the firms that were eventually being taught? The initial goal of the program was to train all the work contractor with all the three J models. However, given the lack of manpower to uh, do so, it was decided to have the uh, instructors being trained only in one specific J model. So as a consequence, they could only 
only train one J model uh, to uh, specific firms. And to uh, organize this program by dividing the US in 22 districts that were in turn divided into a smaller unit uh, called sub-districts. So the, uh, among the work contractors, firms that were interested in participating in this program had to submit an application. And basically all the firms that submit an application were eligible to receive the training. However, the allocation of instructor that was made by a different unit, uh, not by the TWI itself, uh, didn't take into account the fact that instructor could only be trained one of the specific J model. The training was delivered by firms by the order in which they are submitted the application. And so what happened was that there was a substantial imbalance in the allocation of the instructor to the different sub-districts. And as a result, some firms receive all the three trainings that was initially planned by the program. Some other firms receive only one or two J training, and some other firms that were expecting to receive the training didn't get it because the war ended in 1945, and so it was decided also to end this program. So you have described this as a one-off event, but it was actually like a, a succession of events because there were several application windows. Is that correct? Yes, there were 10 application windows over time. And so firms can only apply in one specific application windows and they were put in a line. And so when it was their turn, they were expecting to receive the training. But it's worth noting that still in 1945, there were opening of application windows in the sense that there was a substantial uncertainty on whether the war would have finished in 1945, would then continue, the training could have been performed even later. And so firms were really believing that at some point they would have received the training, even if at the end it didn't happen. So imagine that I am a firm in a specific sub-district, one of these 364 sub-districts. Okay, so these sub-districts are, you know, the US is a big place, so they are like not that minute, let's say. Okay? Yes. And I find out that this program is there in 1940, which is on the first application window, but let's say I'm the last one to find out during that application window. Then it could happen that in my sub-district, for whatever reason, the number of instructors that were there available to give training was very high, in which case I will get the training. It could be that it was very low, in which case I will get no training. It could be that it is relatively high for one of the J modules, but low for the other J modules, in that, you know, for whatever reason, there are lots of instructors who were themselves taught to teach the job methods, but there were no instructors there for the job instructors or very few. In that case, I will get only one of the training, but not the other training. That's what is determining here the allocation of applying firms to, to this training. Yes, it's also important to underscore the application windows were treated as completely separate. So one can think that if you were the last to apply in 1940, you could have been the first among firms that received training in 1941. However, for organizational purposes, it didn't happen. So for Firms were put in a queue based on the application window in which they had applied to the program. Another important component uh, is that uh, the instructors were allocated to a district only for one application window. And this comes from the background of the instructor themselves. In fact, the instructor were either people already working in the industry 
or public employees in the defense department that didn't completely dismiss their job to serve into the TWI. This is because, of course, there was a need of them also in their original job. And so for this reason, if, for instance, the number of trainers assigned to a given district in 1940 was very high, or as you said, was very high in a model, suppose the JM, it could be that the same district in the next application window, so in the 1941, got a completely different set of trainers that maybe was overall very low or was lower in JM and higher in GI. And so this uh, gives uh, a natural variation in the probability that firms add either to get trained at all or to receive training in one or more than one J model. Excellent. I think that I understood, broadly speaking, how this works. It is indeed like a, a very unusual feature that firms can apply only once, uh, even if they have not received any training, right? That being the last one to apply in 1940 means that you had your shot, that's it. You can never apply again, even if there are like a lot of instructors in your district in 1941, two, three, four, and five. But that's obviously great for you uh, in terms of identifying these effects. Yes, uh, it was also the hope for firms that applied in 1940 that at some point they would have received the training the sense that uh, there were no firms that were officially excluded by the program under the condition of applying. The fact that some firms eventually did not uh, receive the training was determined by the end of the war and consequently by the end of the program. What is the data that you use for this paper? I know you have a lot of data sets, but broadly speaking, uh, what are the main sources? So most of the of the data come from the near archives so that they have a complete recording of the U.S. war contractors and specifically the U.S. war contractor that applied for the TWI. And uh, we match this information with uh, data on uh, the war contractor performance between 1935 and 1955, as these were very large firms. Most of them were either issuing bonds or were uh, listed firms. And so it's possible to merge this information with their income uh, statement and balance sheets information. And finally, we also collected data on some surveys about the implementation of managerial practices that were run by the TWI. And uh, this uh, um, gives us some additional information about what really changed within the firm upon receiving the TWI training. So it's not just measuring the performance, but in a way also measuring the change of managerial practices that was associated with the training itself. But you also have information on firms that were not in the program at all, even as applicants or anything. Maybe they were eligible, but they didn't apply or they were the suppliers. Where do you get all this information about just random firms in the U.S. economy of that period? So the samples, all the information that we have about firms are uh, in terms of U.S. war contractors. In fact, this program was specifically targeting U.S. war contractors. We're talking about roughly 25 
5,000 forms. And among them, we were able to uh, collect information for 23,000 firms. Roughly half of them, uh, a little bit more than 11,500, applied for the program and the others did not apply. On top of that, we also able to use uh, the replacement list uh, in order to understand which were the upstream and downstream firms of applicants and non-applicant companies. The replacement list were the list that the firms in which at least one worker was dropped had to submit to the US government, in which they had to explain how they wanted to replace this worker, or they could also ask exemption for workers that were considered essentials, for instance, very high-skilled workers, or also managers that, in fact, in most cases, even if they were dropped, they didn't have a survey. The replacement list also offer information on upstream and downstream firms. Again, these were U.S. work contractors. They were considered essential for the program and, in general, for the U.S. economy in being able to win the war. And so there was a close monitoring of the government, not just of that, but also the upstream, downstream firms, as well as whether they could suffer from draft of uh, uh, high-skills uh, employees. What is the identification strategy that you use specifically to answer the baseline question of whether participants participating in the program was associated with good things that happened to the firm. So, of course, we uh, are aware that firms that decided to participate in the program were different from firms that decided not to apply. Actually, uh, we show in the paper that, that firms that ended up applying to the program were positively selected than firms that did not. So, our comparison focused on firms that applied to the program, roughly 11,500 were contractors, and our identification comes from the allocation of instructors to the different sub-districts in a given application window. So our comparison between two firms that apply to the program in the same application window, that for in the same county, but that for organizational purposes, they ended up being allocated to different sub-districts. And so that in the same application window, they receive either a different share of training trainers or trainers in a specific J model. Uh, and so this allows us to compare not only firms that receive some training with firms that didn't receive any training, but we can also compare firms that receive a different combination of the, of the, uh, of the J trainings, which is crucial for us to test the Toyota Way hypothesis, as we were discussing before. So on, on top of uh, thinking that this identification strategy is credible due to the historical uh, setting and the organization of the program, we also test whether these uh, firms were similar in terms of their observable characteristics. Uh, and we find that this is the case. They were on the same trend of their performance in the five years uh, before the program. And they were also located in uh, uh, counties that were were similar in terms of their characteristics in 1939 and right before uh, the program started. 
I am going to I am going to describe the way that I understand the uh, identification strategy. And p- please stop me and correct me the moment that you hear them saying something that is not quite correct. So I'm not sure that I quite understood it. Uh, so let's see whether my ass- assessment is correct or not. So you mentioned this is a difference in differences event study equation, like the, the baseline equation. Now, just now you were saying, oh, we are using the availability of the instructors in the sub-district. It is true that you could use the availability of the instructors in the sub-district in the application window as an instrument for whether the firm in that sub-district in the application window receives the training or not. You do that as part of one of your auxiliary analysis as a two-stage square strategy, but that is not what you do in the, let's say, baseline type of estimation that you follow throughout throughout the, the paper. Instead, what you do is difference in differences. The data set, as you very well said, is a data set of firms and years, and it includes only the firms that apply, because as you said, the ones that did not apply are obviously different and so on. So the dependent variable is some outcome, let's say sales of a firm in a year. I said before, difference in differences, event study. So the main independent variable is the interaction between receiving the training or not and the years before and after receiving the training, that is the leads and the lags. And now to the thing that I was not so sure that I understood. So the controls here in this regression are the application date. And here I presume that you mean not the year or not the application window, but the actual date. So the 22nd of January of 1942. So that's like a really precise time control. And then in the regression, you have the interaction between county fixed effects, sector fixed effects, and time fixed effects. And this is now the one thing that I don't quite understand because county fixed effects, sector fixed effects, and time fixed effects, that interaction is incredibly rich because if I remember well, there are around 5,000 counties in the US, but there are only 364 sub-districts in your data set, which means that a sub-district is going to have a lot of counties. Now, because the firm that may receive the training or not is in a sub-district or, or the variation of whether the firm receives training or not is at the sub-district year level, I was wondering after you put this fixed effect, what is the residual variation that you are exploiting? Yes, so two excellent questions. So first of all, you're right, we are controlling for the application date fixed at. And this is because even within an application window, so for uh, first of all, let me clarify that firms were eligible for the for, for participating in the program when they receive a U.S. work, work contract, meaning that a firm that received a work contract in 1942 was not eligible to apply the program for the program in 1940 1941. The, the reason to uh, for controlling for the specific date of the application comes from the fact that even within application window, firms that may have applied first for the program could have been, for any reason, more willing to improve or more willing to make it. Uh, the example you made before, if I'm the last firm applying in 1940, I could do that because I'm eligible, but maybe I, am, I have less incentives to become better than a firm that is the first uh, to know about the, uh, about the program. So this is the reason for controlling for the application date and not just the year fix about that. On your second question, what we really want to compare is firms uh, that are located in the same counties uh, and they are operating in the same sector, but they ended up 
being allocated to different uh, sub-districts. Uh, and so for this reason, they receive uh, a different combination of instructor and, and as a result are trained or receive different training or not. So we really want to control for the county characteristics uh, of the program. In terms of your question about the number of the countries versus the number of sub-districts, it's also worth mentioning that the U.S. world contractors were located in the most established industrial areas in the U.S. Most of them were located, for instance, on the east part of the country, in the Midwest, some in the south. And so we are not really exploiting all the counties that are available in the U.S., but only those that happen to be across different sub-districts and in the areas in which U.S. world contractors were concentrated. So, because this is essentially like as we have been discussing, elites and last lags regression. Figures are obviously a much better way to convey the results and tables. So, you know, we can imagine them in our head, but maybe the listeners want as much. Essentially, in these figures, you're going to show that trained firms and non-trained firms are evolving in the same way prior to training. And then after training, their paths start to diverge in a way such that the trained firms do much better than the non-trained firms. What are the main dependent variables that you study and what are the results? We mostly look at sales total factor productivity revenue and return on asset in order to capture different aspects of firm performance, which are the sales that these firms were making, their productivity and their profitability. And we find that along all the three dimensions of the performance of training and non-trained firms, we're on the same trend in the five years before the program. Then they start evolving differentially for trained firms relative to non trained firms with effects that for productivity and profitability continue to increase up of the end of our panel, which is 10 years after the training. We can also, instead of looking at the different diff coefficient, looking at the single different coefficients, so looking at the evolution of trained and non-trained firms. And what we find is that actually, both firms are on increasing trend in their performance. So even firms that did not receive the TWI training are becoming better over time in terms of sales and productivity, not in terms of profitability, which is fairly stable. But our results are really coming from the trained firms doing better. In fact, the different diff coefficients does not, is not really able to disentangle whether the estimated coefficient come from the trained firms doing better or the non-trained firms doing worse, either because they did not receive the training or because they could have been harmed by the plants that received the training. So our results are really driven by the improved performance of firms that received the TWI intervention. You also mentioned that you study the separate effects of receiving the different types of, uh, of uh, trainings, like in instructions, relations, and methods, because as we have mentioned, it could be that you happen to be in a sub-district where there are a lot of instructions, instructors, <laughs> or uh, methods, instructors, or whatever. What do you find there when you like separate this overall training into the three sub-components? Yeah, so we find that the specific training that firms receive 
is associated with uh, heterogeneous effect on their firm performance. Specifically, the job relation training is the one that taught firms how to manage and motivate workers, is the one that is associated with the highest improvement in terms of sales, productivity, and profitability of this firm. The uh, second largest effect comes from the job methods that taught uh, firms how to introduce improvements to the current production processes. And finally, job instructor that is was most focused on improving operation and establish a standard procedure for operation still drives to positive effects on firm performance that are, however, smaller in magnitude than the effects of the uh, other two uh, training, the job relation and the job method training. You have this uh, additional set of dependent variables, which are here, I am reading, repairs of machines, I, I presume maintenance of machines, injuries of workers, bonus given to workers, strikes, training, inventory, product lines, and marketing. And as you were saying, these are not like final outcomes, but they are more like intermediate outcomes or, or some of them or some others are more related to directly practices. And you are saying that they can be linked to each of the three different types of trainings. Whereas, for instance, instructions, which teaches managers how to um, repair machines and deal with worker injuries is obviously going to be associated with whether the firm does maintenance, repairs, and injuries, whereas relations is going to be related to bonus strikes and training. And it happens that these intermediate variables improve only for the firms that happen to receive training in that specific area. Exactly. Okay, so now I want to go back to the issue of the Toyota way. Okay, we already talked about it. You know, it is related to complementarities. What is the test that you do there and how do you interpret it? First of all, let me clarify that the results that we have been focused so far, so when we disentangle the effect of the different type of US intervention on firm performance, are based on firms that only receive one specific training. So either job instructor only or job method only or job regulations only. But uh, there were some firms that ended up receiving either two trainings or all the three trainings uh, as uh, that was uh, the initial intention of the program. And so for these firms, uh, we can make a comparison between firms that receive only one specific model and one in firms that receive models, a specific model in combination with one or uh, the other two models. And what we find is that there is a complementarity effect in the sense that the implementation of managerial practices improve more in the model for, for the initial training of the firms once they receive also other uh, type of trainings. And we interpret this result by, by thinking that, that managerial practices are complementary. And so specifically, for instance, if I'm getting better in allocating workers to specific jobs, which is the job relation methods. And I receive this training after receiving training in job instructors, so in firm processes. Then I can have fewer intervention for machine maintenance because I'm locating the best workers to the, um, uh, the, the right machine to operate. Or I can have fewer injuries because the workers now know how to do within the firms and to deal with the firms better. 
And so in this way, we think that uh, these results support the Toyota Way hypothesis about the complementarities among managerial practices and the joint effect in improving firm productivity. So I, I want to think now about the way in which the notion of complementarities between practices differs from the Toyota Way hypothesis. Okay, so I think that we have established that complementarities between practices is essentially a feature of the production function. Okay, so it's essentially like a, a cross derivative in the production function that is positive. You know, if you do both variables, you are going to get more than twice the effect of doing each of the two variables separately. And you, you gave an example of one of such examples there. Okay, so if I introduce the relations practice, my how I deal with my workers is going to get better. Okay, I'm going to have less strikes or, or whatever, but that is going to be compounded if in addition to this, I do one of the other or, or both of the other two practices. So this is great. Now, I think that the test for this is that the year after or, or shortly after you have a, had some firms being treated and other firms not being treated, you put uh, you run a regression in which one dependent variable is the first practice, uh, one independent variable, sorry, is the first practice. The second independent variable is the second practice. You put the interaction. If the interaction is positive, then you have complementarities. Okay? They are randomly allocated or exogenously allocated in your settings, so that's great. I think that the Toyota way means something else. Hmm? The Toyota way means the following. There is an underlying complementarity in the production function and firms are able to observe that complementarity and endogenously react to it. So, and, and they react to it, not in an immediate way, but over the long term as the dynamics pass, okay? This is what Toyota's, uh, we were mentioning earlier uh, with respect to Toyota that says that there is a multiplier effect of ongoing further improvement. So, the, the critical word there is ongoing, a virtuous cycle of continuous improvements. Now I'm thinking of, imagine that it takes, that firms can reach like the frontier of managerial knowledge. Hmm? So there is like some best practices in a society at a particular point in time and firms can figure them out or not, or they can be taught or not or whatever. Now I would expect that the Toyota way means that over the long term, the two, in the regression that I mentioned earlier, the derivative, the cross derivative is not positive, but instead negative. And let me try to explain to you why I think it's negative. Okay. Imagine that a firm happens to be blessed by receiving exogenously both practices. So the firm will immediately go to the frontier of knowledge. No problem. Okay. And then 10 years later, it will still be there. Okay. Because I mean, unless the capital human capital has depreciated or whatever, let's say it's still there. But now imagine that a firm exogenously receives only one type of training. But now the Toyota way kicks in. The firm realizes, wait a second, the benefit of by myself investing in acquiring the second type of knowledge has gone up. And I have 10 years to achieve that if I do a sufficient effort. This means that receiving one type of training 10 years later will be equivalent to receiving both types of training because the firm that receives only one type of training will have endogenously figured out by itself following the Toyota continuous improvement 
how to do well on the second dimension. And therefore, my prediction will be that you expect a negative second derivative rather than a positive one. That, that's, a, that's a way that, you know, the notion of complementarities, in my opinion, differs from the notion of Toyota way. Yes. So there are uh, two components of the Toyota way hypothesis. One is related to the implementation of one specific managerial practice and the fact that just the implementation of one single managerial practice can have a cumulative effect over time. Because once you learn how to do better a given task, you keep on doing it better and better. You can even become even better to do it over time. And this allows your performance to continue to improve. On the other hand, as you pointed out in the, the uh, Toyota uh, way hypothesis, when there is the adoption for whatever reason of one managerial practice, you can uh, the, the cost of adopting other practices decreases, and so it could be easier for the firms to endogenously ended up adopting multiple practices. In our setting, this is not the case. So uh, what we are testing is whether plants receive randomly one, two, or three training in managerial practices, but we do not find evidence of an, exo- of an endogenous response of the firms to other practices. So for instance, going back to our initial discussion of the fact that the adoption of practices in the plants change based on the training that we receive, of course, we can look at whether firms that receive uh, job instruction training reduce uh, intervention for repairing machine and increase the cost for machine maintenance, which this is the case. But we can also look at the same variables for firms that receive the job methods and the job relation training. And for these firms, we do not find any changes in these managerial practices. So it looks like that the change is really related to the training and there is no endogenous response to other practices unless firms randomly receive it, but but, uh, through the program itself. Wonderful. So you also study spillover effects along the supply chain, and these are really interesting. Now, I am now going to reference another paper that has come in this podcast series by Alfaro Ureña, Manelici, and Vasquez. They talk about the arrival of multinationals to Costa Rica and how this improves the performance of firms that start to become their suppliers. Now, there, there are strong, positive spillovers, but starting to supply to a multinational is an enormous shock especially for a Costa Rica firm. The shock that you have here is essentially that your customer or your supplier had workers who received 10 hours of training by somebody who was in turn trained by the TWI program. So this is like, I mean, conceptually, it will seem like a much smaller shock. In that sense, I'm really amazed that these second order effects can be detected at all in your data. How do you study this question and what do you find? So first of all, I totally agree with you. We're talking about two very different shocks here. Specifically, we focus on firms that were already in the supply chain of firms that, that received the training. What we want to test is whether there is a spillover, whether there is a knowledge flow 
of uh, uh, practices between firms that receive the training in their upstream and downstream companies. And we find that this is the case. Now, from a theoretical point of view, this could have been driven by two reasons. One is that firms uh, so once uh, you are upstream or downstream firm of a plan that for some reason gets better and has better performance, you may in turn get better. Or there could be that there is a knowledge transfer in terms of managerial practices that you start implementing and you're getting better in that respect too. In our setting, it looks like that the second hypothesis is the uh, prevailing one, in the sense that if we look at the implementation of managerial practices in upstream and downstream firms of trained firms, we find that these firms start implementing the same practices in which the trained firms receive the training. So it looks like that there is a knowledge exchange in terms of managerial practices within the supply chain of trained firms. So I am wondering about how these spillovers take place specifically separately for the different types of instructions. So one of the instructions is the uh, methods instruction, which is about how to track production, manage inventory and all this. Okay. So let's just imagine, probably this is not what they were doing at the time, but let's just imagine that that what they're implementing is something broadly speaking similar to just-in-time production. Okay. So now just-in-time production means that you are obviously tracking your inventory very precisely, but that also means that you are imposing constraints on your suppliers because your suppliers cannot send you the goods wherever they feel like. You are constraining them. So these complementarities in the production process implies that you are, have to impose just-in-time production on them as well. There, I really understand it. Now, on the relations type of uh, instruction, one way to think about this is, well, am I paying a bonus to my workers or not? There, it will seem that it's less obvious where the spillover is coming because how I manage my workers is my business. I don't really have to you know, teach or expect my suppliers or, or customers to do it one way or another. It's, you know, there is no reason for this spillover to take place. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we think that uh, these spillovers are mostly coming from exchanges between these firms, like managers talking to each other and saying, I found a way to reduce strikes of the workers, just allocating them to better tasks. And so this is the kind of knowledge that can be transmitted. Same thing, so I can become more productive by having more regular uh, maintenance of the machines. And so in this case, upstream and downstream firms can be exposed to this information and they can decide to implement it in their firms independently of what the trained firms is doing. So as it happens, I happen to teach things about Toyota to my management students and particularly how Toyota and GM differ in dealing with their suppliers. And then one thing that is very stark is the fact that the suppliers of Toyota have plants that are located very close by uh, to the plants uh, 
of the plants of the suppliers of uh, Toyota are close to the uh, plants of Toyota, whereas the plants of the suppliers of GM are on average 500 miles away uh, from the assembly plants of GM. I mentioned this in the context of if what we are thinking is that this type of like an informal face-to-face, you know, like happen to be in a bar and talking with my customers, spillovers are going on. The physical distance between the plants will seem at least as much, if not more important than the buyer-seller relations. Yes, absolutely. This is right, but it's also important the fact that there is a connection between uh, plants. In fact, if uh, we think about just exchange among uh, managers, we should be able to find similar spillovers effect, not only in upstream and downstream companies, but only in firms that are located geographically close to trained firms. So we do this exercise looking at firms that did not apply to the TWI program, even if they were eligible. And we find that, that there are no spillovers effect in this dimension. So the, the, the extent of spillovers effect is uh, almost zero in our setting. So it looks like that proximity in facilitating the exchange of information is important, but only if there is a relationship between trained firms and the other firms. There is not just a flow of information in the air can, that can be captured by all the plans that are closer to the trade firms. So we mentioned earlier that this was obviously like a, a program implemented and financed uh, by the federal government. I, I think I, I mentioned something that you write in the paper, which is that it was relatively cheap. The cost per instructor here was only $88, like given the enormous benefits in performance that uh, this program was associated with. Uh, it will seem that the federal government will want to uh, maintain this program for much longer. Why do you think that despite its apparent success, the program was discontinued? This is an excellent question. And I have to say that one of the reasons why there was put so much effort in the setting of this program was the hope of creating a private demand for it after the war. So the government was hoping to be able to sell the services to firms that were not U.S. war contractors after the war. However, this didn't happen for, uh, I think, two main reasons. One is a more economic reason, in the sense that after World War II, the U.S. were one of the very few countries in the world whose uh, production capacity was almost untouched by the war. And so the uh, U.S. firms start exporting a great deal of products to war-torn European and Japanese economies. And so all firms were actually improving their performance, even without the TWI. Uh, again, if you look at the performance of firms that ended up not receiving the training, they were still getting better in terms of sales and productivity. Not as much as trained firms, of course, but they were on uh, upward trend. And so this may have uh, suggested that they don't really need it to improve because uh, uh, they were uh, already in a period of economic bonanza. The second one was a more ideological reason in the sense that after World War II, the government intervention into the economy was seen with a lot of skepticism by firm managers. And so 
for managers wanted to be autonomous on their decision, responsible for what was happening in the firm, and having some trainers that came around, look at the plans, and uh, uh, suggest what to change, how to make improvement, was not very well received after the war. Interestingly, exactly for these reasons, the creator, the TWI program, decided to go in Japan and in Europe, where the economic conditions were completely different. And the idea of improving managerial practices was uh, was received with a lot of enthusiasm. In fact, the Toyota way system and way of producing is a direct consequence of this program, where we were talking about retiring orders by the delivery dates uh, or reduce the minimum the inventory which is mostly part uh, of the job methods training this is the core of the Toyota way um, as well only decades later when uh, Toyota and more in general Japanese uh, cars invaded the US market uh, the US firms realized that uh, they were losing ground in terms of management and they in turn invited Japanese managers to teach the Japanese management techniques to the U.S. counterpart, but it was not very far from the techniques and the practices that they have indeed developed during World War II. So one conclusion from this is that you have been testing whether there is support for the Toyota Way in the program that created the Toyota Way. Yes, exactly. And it seems that there is support for the idea that once firms improve the managerial practices, they can really improve their performance and being on a higher growth path than firms that did not apply these techniques for years after the the initial implementation. Wonderful, Michela. Thanks for coming to the program. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Jordi Blanes Vidal and this is the Visible Hand podcast. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to the other papers that we discuss, introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Dunn.